0: Welcome to the Cineca Podcast, the weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SupChina. Subscribe to SupChina's daily access newsletter to keep on top of all the latest news from China from hundreds of different news sources. Or check out all the original writing on our site at SupChina.com. We've got reported stories, editorials, regular columns, a growing library of videos, and of course, podcasts. We cover everything from China's fraught foreign relations to its ingenious entrepreneurs, from the ongoing repression of Uyghurs and other Muslim people in China's Xinjiang region to China's ambitious effort to eliminate poverty. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. We cover China with neither fear nor favor. I'm Kaiser Guo, coming to you from my home in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. How does the Chinese state, led as it is by a communist party that notionally represents the interests of workers, respond when those workers protest, strike, and engage in other forms of labor unrest? How has the state's approach evolved, and what can China's approach to handling labor issues tell us about the way Beijing handles dissent or social disruption more generally, or even more broadly, about how authoritarian regimes approach the challenges of governance? These are just some of the issues that my guest today addresses in his new book, Workers and Change in China, Resistance, Repression, Responsiveness. The author of this excellent title is Manfred Elfstrom, Assistant Professor of Political Science at the University of British Columbia, Okanagan in Kelowna, BC. He joins me on Seneca for the first time. Manfred, a very warm welcome to you. Thanks so much for having me. I've been listening to this podcast forever, and I'm really excited to be on it. Oh, we're very excited to have you. So I want to actually start with something pretty superficial, but that I I think I uh, connected with instantly about your book, and that is the cover— I believe you are the first author that I've spoken to and I may be wrong but I think you are the first whose book features cover art actually painted by the author himself or herself and uh, the reason I connect with this perhaps is that you know the intro music to this show that you guys just all heard is you know also a song I recorded and wrote so uh, <laughs> tell me about this cover I mean it's it's great so let me' it's, for those of you who haven't seen it yet it's an oil uh, painting of uh, a factory at night. Uh, it's quite beautiful. It's really, a, it's it's a really lovely painting with a sort of industrial orange glowing sky and uh, reflections in what's doubtlessly a really polluted river. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was an art major in college, along with being a history
1: major and some other things. And for a while, at least, I tried to keep painting off and on. And that image is from a photo I took, I think, back in 2006 or 2007. I used to work for labor rights groups and I was in Shenzhen at that time. And I had a little taxi fender bender and had to walk home to the place where I was staying and snap some pictures
0: of some factories at night. Yeah. So uh, it's it's great. I, I do believe that you are the first. If anyone actually painted their cover and uh, I've talked to you about your book, you know, please correct me, but it's great. Um, and, you know, one should not judge a book by its cover, but in this case, you wouldn't be going wrong. So one of the things that I really liked about the book uh, was that, as I kind of alluded to in, in the the intro, you were conscious throughout uh, that it did fit into a literature about authoritarianism. So did you know, I'm curious, at the outset that your work was going to form, you know, part of this bigger picture endeavor to understand Authoritarian governance, or did you think you were just simply writing a book about labor relations in China?
1: It was really the latter. Uh, like I said, I used to work for labor rights organizations before I went back to academia. Mm-hmm. And when I started grad school, my original motive for the research was just to find out what kind of impact all that activism was having on governance, you know, what it all added up to. But as I settled into the project, I realized that I was really dissatisfied with a lot of the existing work on authoritarianism more generally. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. There was a time specifically, uh, maybe in the 1990s and into the early 2000s, when research on authoritarianism was dominated by what's since been dubbed a transitology paradigm, where every dictatorship was assumed to be basically in transit to a democracy via revolution, via some sort of pacted
0: transition, but at any rate in transit. Would that include both, you know, sort of the collapsists, people who said, you know, uh, the brittle authoritarian, he's bound to collapse, but also that kind of uh, modernization theory crowd that said that, you know, uh, inevitably as per capita GDP hit this particular level, you were going to see this kind of uh, empowered, Middle class, and they would have democratic demands, and out would go the dictator. It was that 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 you would class in that as well? Yeah, exactly.
1: It would encompass all of that, and people on uh, your program probably would tend to be naturally skeptical of arguments like that when it comes to the Chinese Communist Party and it either being about to fall from power or you know in the midst of some gradual evolution to democracy.
0: No, you're, you're right that I think that, uh, yeah, people on our, our program probably might not be. But so you, you say that that was the dominant approach to understanding authoritarianism in the 90s and the early 2000s. And I would certainly agree. Uh, but that seems to have evolved into something else, uh, that, you know, kind of says, Hey, wait, uh, authoritarianism seems to be quite resilient and, and it swung very much in the other direction. Yeah.
1: Yeah. The pendulum really has swung in the other direction and, Uh, My feeling is that too many analyses today sort of start with some sort of paradox in Beijing's rule, like protests in an authoritarian regime or economic growth without strong property rights or whatever. And then they explain why everything makes sense and ultimately works out in the government's favor. The way I put it in the book is that every seeming bug is treated as a feature. And the problem, I think, with both that resilience-focused form of argument and the old transition focus arguments is that they yield an overly static picture of Chinese society and the state. Either the government's frozen and it's ready to crumble or or merge into something else, or it's completely on top of things. But regardless, there's not a lot of change going on, which of course doesn't match with the experience of uh, those of us who spent time in China or other authoritarian governments.
0: Yeah, it's, it's fascinating. It strikes me that uh I haven't really thought about this before but it's kind of been a leitmotif of this whole program. I've talked to so many scholars about their books and they have approached this problem from a bunch of different angles but yeah, I think that a lot of them are kind of trying to figure out how authoritarian regimes govern. It's a big theme also in Jude Blanchett's podcast. You know, he he really focuses on people who are uh you, you, scholars who are looking at uh, at authoritarianism. But you know, just off the top of my head, I mean I've got like Christian Sirace who wrote about this, Jennifer Pan and Molly Roberts, both of whom you mentioned in your book. I haven't talked to Dan Mattingly yet, but I do intend to. You know, he talks about how NGOs are sort of enrolled in this program. Uh Maria Repnikova, you know, talking about media, I'm sure I could go on. I mean Judith Shapiro in the Facebook, China Goes Green, I think, you know, about coercive environmentalism. Uh, I think that all adds you know, pieces to this same puzzle that you're all working on. So I think it's it's really fascinating. So if you had to characterize the contribution that you hope that your book makes to this literature on authoritarianism, what would you emphasize? Well, I think most importantly,
1: it focuses on bottom-up processes of change in difficult contexts. So it starts from the shop floor and works its way up through the different Levels of society up to the halls of power and shows how the actions of ordinary people can affect uh, policy, uh, both in ways that advance people's causes and
0: sometimes backfire. And it's not just bottom up either. I think you look at, at responses to that bottom up desire for change as well, yeah, at the interplay between the two. Would that be fair?
1: Exactly. And you can look at downward pressures, you can look at upward pressures, you can look at the iterative interplay between the two. My focus just happens to be more on the pressures coming from below. And it's it's a little bit of a reaction to uh, research, not just on China, uh, but on social movements in a lot of different contexts where the system is the independent variable, the cause, and what the people do is the dependent variable, the outcome. So I'm flipping it around and looking at that uh other direction of causality but well aware that that
0: uh things are pushing in both directions at once sure 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 and and to approach this you do research on two geographies specifically you focus on the pearl river delta which of course is you know the home to all these these factory heavy cities like guangzhou and shenzhen and and especially dongguan i mean dongguan is like the factory capital of the world and then uh also the yangtze river delta uh So you've got there, you know, not just Shanghai and its environs, but also all the cities of Zhejiang and Jiangsu. And you focus specifically on Guangdong and on Jiangsu, uh, two provinces that um, I think in many ways are, are excellent candidates. Can you explain why you chose these two in particular?
1: Well, you never have a perfect comparison between two places in a country as big as China. There's just so much variation and so many factors to consider, but... I'd argue those two are as similar a pair of regions as any two that you'll get in China. Uh, they both have large migrant worker populations. They mm-hmm. both uh, do a lot of export-oriented manufacturing, and um, they're both you know, leading engines
0: of China's economy. Hmm. I guess the other one I would have thought would would be Zhejiang instead of Jiangsu. Uh, Was there a reason you went for Jiangsu rather than Zhejiang?
1: Yeah, I I should be a little clearer and say that I'm really focusing on Jiangsu's portion of the uh, Yangtze River delta. Uh, So I'm not focusing quite so much on, on, say, northern Jiangsu as much as the southern part. But Mm -hmm. Zhejiang would have also been a possibility uh, since it's also part of that same Delta, It just felt a little bit too unique, and it presented a little less of a contrast to Guangdong's portion of the Pearl River Delta than Jiangsu's portion did. Uh, at least during sure. the years I captured in my book, Zhejiang's strike rate was really close to Guangdong, so there wasn't that gap there. And it had also gone a lot further in terms of trade union reforms than Jiangsu Su had. Zhejiang also had a really complicated economic base in history. You know, town and village enterprises were a big part of its growth. And you have all those famous clusters of manufacturing, making cigarette lighters or eyeglasses or whatever. So the comparison just seemed like it would be too messy.
0: Yeah, yeah, I can see that. I mean, there are some strange outlier towns in Zhejiang. I mean, the whole in, in environs of Wenzhou are just sort of very, uh, very different from the rest of China. Um, you mentioned uh, the the rate of strikes and the way that you measure that you have this data set that you you've put together yourself and it's got what 1400 plus uh, actual in, in incidents that you look at um, can you talk about the china strikes data set as well as some of the other existing data that you've seen on labor unrest other you know data that you've drawn on um, and maybe you can give us a sense of the scale of labor unrest in China both in absolute terms and, and maybe also in relative or in comparative terms, you know, on, on a per capita basis. Um I I'm I'm sure that there's plenty of people who are aware of the kind of the surprisingly high frequency of, of actual labor incidences in China. But I'm I guess I'm I'm less aware of, of how it compares to other geographies to, you know, South Korea or Indonesia or uh, Thailand or what have you.
1: I started China Strikes back in 2010, and then I captured the next two years and plus worked backward to 2003. So I ended up covering the whole of the Hu Jintao, Wen Jiabao era. And it's a data set that's online. You can go visit it at um, chinastrikes.crowdmap.com. It's based off this software that activists in Kenya came up with for tracking election irregularities.
0: Oh, yeah, I remember that.
1: Yeah, it's, it's Ushahidi is, is the group that put it together. Uh, I think it's the best document of labor unrest for the years that it captures, but like you mentioned, there are a whole bunch of other protest data sets. Now, some that have advantages that China Strikes doesn't have. So there's a smallish one from the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences, for instance, that a few people have gotten their hands on. A uh, colleague of mine, Yao Li, has collected a data set based on reports in the dissident website mm-hmm. Chen Chryo in Taiwan has a data set and then there's this massive one that a pair of uh, Chinese researchers uh, working under the handle of wikidana put together based on social media that just has you know tens of thousands of incidents and finally uh, Jennifer Pan and Han Jung have started using, machine learning uh, to identify protests in social media, images and posts. And of course, uh, just a little after I started my data set, the Hong Kong-based advocacy group China Labor Bulletin began their strike map, which they've just kept updating to the present, put a lot of energy into, and is probably the most useful resource at this point for just keeping your pulse on what's going
0: on. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so based on looking at all that, how does China compare to other very manufacturing intensive geographies? So it's tricky to compare
1: China to other places because these are, of course, data sets based on social media, based a little bit on state media, based on dissident sources. And there's no official count from the Chinese government of the number of strikes they have every year. Mm -hmm. The U.S., since the Reagan administration, has tracked strikes involving more than 1,000 people, so it stopped tracking smaller strikes. And in the book, I compare the number of incidents that were that size in China, that is more than 1,000 strikes, according to China Labor Bulletin with the U.S. figure. And taking into account uh, China Labor Bulletin's estimate that they only capture about 10% of all the conflict happening, I estimate that in 2015, for example, China saw maybe 70 times more strikes than the U.S., even taking into account China's much, much bigger population, I I think that's a lot more intense.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure.
1: Recently, Cornell University's ILR School has started a strike map to fill in the gap in reporting on the U.S., so this might be something that's worth revisiting. Maybe regardless, I think the main takeaway is just that strikes are really common and somewhat normalized in China. So you'll maybe recall that there was a strike by bus drivers in Singapore from the Chinese mainland a few years ago. Mm -hmm,
0: mm -hmm. And
1: this was a really big deal in Singapore because there hadn't been a strike in the country in about 25 years. But when they interviewed the drivers, the drivers didn't seem to understand what the fuss was all about. They thought it was a natural response to the problems they faced, and that's how they had dealt with things back in China before they came to Singapore.
0: I'm curious, does the growth of incidences of unrest in China outpace the actual growth of the number of workers or the number of factories or other measures, you know, by which, you know, the the number of laborers actually grows. I don't know how it matches up with the number
1: of laborers, but all of these data sets basically follow fairly believable patterns. So there were a lot of protests after the layoffs uh, following the 2008 financial crisis. And then there were Um, protests, but around higher wages Again, in 2010, when the economy was doing really good, and my data set in particular roughly follows the ups and downs of formally adjudicated employment disputes—you uh, know, cases brought to mediation and arbitration in court—which the Chinese government does report in its labor uh, statistical yearbook. It it may be that this is just a uh, function overall of China's continued industrialization, but uh, even so. Growing unrest uh, is
0: a concern, I think, for the government. So we've talked a little bit about one of the R's in your very alliteral title. We've talked about resistance, but you also look at repression and at responsiveness. So let's talk about repression and how you measure that. You settled on what I thought was an interesting proxy, which is spending on the People's Armed Police, the wujing. Can you talk about the pros and cons of that choice of measuring it? Uh, First of all, those budget numbers are pretty widely available, are they? And then secondly, how well do you think it maps against other possible measures of repressiveness?
1: So the Wujing numbers are available publicly through 2009 at the provincial level. And then after that, they just give a national aggregate. So there aren't limits to how close I could bring the analysis up to present. Uh, there are certainly other ways of capturing things like repression. I have a paper with Yao Li in the Journal of Contemporary China where we focus on the likelihood of a protest resulting in arrests or police violence as a different measure of repression or at least of overt repression instead of spending, and uh, then we further test how well spending is correlated with repression. Um, Just to spoil, how well does it correlate? It correlates poorly in the Hu Wen era, but Mm -hmm. well in the Xi era. That is, places that invested more in the police under Hu Jintao and Wen Jiabao were less likely to crack down in a heavy-handed way on protests, but more likely under Xi. But interestingly, we find the inflection point was back in uh, 2009 uh, toward the end of Hu and Wen's Era, uh,
0: rather than uh, when she came to power. That just kind of raises the, the question of though How do you define what a repressive response is? You talk, for example, about how uh, there's kind of preemption that's done. It's very a common approach in the Yangtze River Delta. And does that count as a repressive response? Or, or I mean, you know, if you try to sort of head something off before it actually turns into uh, a full blown strike and you're using for example technological surveillance is that repressive that you would think would help your 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 uh the correlation because that some of that wujing spending is going into things like facial recognition technology right
1: right and there's you know been a real proliferation of of these kind of sophisticated techniques of keeping Track of people in China. I've even heard of governments looking at spending data on online websites to get a sense of potential outbreaks of strike activity. Huh. I would classify all of that as repression, but some of it's obviously softer and less intrusive than others. And just to uh, go back a little bit, the reason I focus on spending uh, rather than you know number of people beaten up or whatever is that my ultimate interest is in repressive capacity and also responsive capacity, like the long-term consequences of building uh, these forms of uh, capacity for the government. And so spending on the uh, people's armed police doesn't mean people being uh, beaten up or confronted in the here and now, but sort of an investment in that kind of uh, reserve ability to confront workers, when uh, the situation gets out of
0: hand. Yeah, by all sorts of different means. And yeah, I completely, I think that's a very, very valid way to go about it. You also have to measure responsiveness. So can you talk about how you quantified that? And again, you know, why you found, uh, you use as a measure, the outcomes of adjudications in labor cases. And uh, you use that as sort of, you know, in, when they went either, it was either a push or when it kind of went in favor of the workers, you you kind of chop that up in the, responsiveness column, yeah?
1: Yeah, so one of the reviewers from my book actually pushed back on this a little bit and said, why didn't I, in parallel with my measure of repression, uh, use uh, spending on courts instead as my measure of responsiveness? And Mm. the reason I use pro-worker or split uh, decisions and mediation and arbitration in court is that my feeling is that ruling more in favor of workers means a greater ability to overcome the influence of different powerful local economic interests. And I treat that as kind of a skill
0: in and of itself. So, Manfred, your main finding, I mean, let's cut to the chase here really quick, is that there is both more responsiveness to the issues raised by labor and more extensive, more sophisticated repression. I think that for a lot of people who've spent time looking at China, that is a finding that is not going to surprise people. It's going to make a lot of sense. And it won't be all that jarring uh, to, to, you. I mean, yeah, okay, so there will be people who think, hey, that seems very contradictory or paradoxical. But, you know, hey, I I know that when I am asked, is A happening or is B happening? My answer, as often as not, is just, you know, yes. (laughs) Is Xi Jinping's anti-corruption drive really about reducing uh, graft and bribery, or is it about purging his political foes? Yes, right? Uh, is the current, you know, what we're calling the Red New Deal aimed at strengthening the party's hold on the, the levers of, of, of economic and cultural uh, and political power? Or is it aimed at addressing genuine, you know, popular grievances that have been earnestly expressed by the masses? Yes, right? But, I mean, let's assume that many of the people listening aren't so used to this and they see a more accommodating approach to rest of labor and a more coercive or repressive approach As fundamentally irreconcilable. Uh, When the two things are both happening, what does that actually look like? I mean, how do repression and responsiveness interact?
1: Well, at the site of a particular protest, it might mean the government leaning on a company to make some sort of payout to the workers to tamp the whole thing down. But at the same time, police coming around to the people they think uh, were the ringleaders of the strike and detaining them or pressuring them to, to uh, back off or accept whatever the company has to offer. Uh, you know, in the bigger mm-hmm. picture, zooming away from any particular factory, it means spending, again, a lot on the police. It means reorienting the official trade union apparatus to uh, being a little more proactive, a little more open to workers. It means passing new labor laws, like China did most dramatically back in two thousand and eight. Uh, it means a whole range of different things, and all of this happening at once. And I, I agree. In in a way, it, this all makes sense. Like, doesn't every government employ carrots and uh, sticks? And I've been yeah. listening to Mike Duncan's revolutions podcast. I don't know if you. Oh, I love that podcast. To- yeah, <laughs> it's really good. And all the episodes discussing all these czarist uh, initiatives, like the Stolypin reforms yeah. and how they were paired with the infamous Stolypin necktie or gallows for radicals. All those episodes really remind me a lot of today's China. But what I think is unique about autocracies, uh, like, uh, czarist Russia or China today is that they need to deploy these things at the exact same time. Um, mm. So the two Stolypin mm-hmm. moves came right together. Whereas in the U.S. you had things like the Palmer Raids of 1919 and 1920, and then you had the New Deal opening up to unions in the 1930s. You didn't have both things uh, happening at the same
0: time. But more like pendular swings back and forth between repression and, and responsiveness. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It also strikes me that, you know, you, you convey a sense of particular urgency when it, for, for China in, in dealing and, and with like, uh, the stakes being especially high when it comes to China and the, the need to handle labor unrest. And, and you gave a talk that I listened to at USC that Clay Doobie organized. Um, it was fantastic. Uh, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, but you talked about how China as a, you call it a post-state socialist autocracy. Um, it has these hollow trade unions. You talked about just now the All-China Federa- all Federation of Trade Unions. Uh, and it has this nominal commitment to egalitarianism, right? It's a communist party. It's the workers' party, right? Um, and it's got this, you termed it a, a conspicuous fusing of economic and political power. Yeah, and, and yeah, all countries have that. But in, in China, it is particularly you know, kind of flagrant, right? So can you unpack this a little bit? explain how these things combine to make the stakes so you know, particularly high in China when it comes to, to labor movements.
1: Yeah. So all of their authoritarian governments, uh, whatever their historical backgrounds, have weaker institutions like courts and elections for keeping social disputes at arm's length. So every challenge they run up against is just absorbed right into the body of the state in a way that it isn't necessarily in a, a liberal democracy. So China's got that for starters. And then on top of that, it has uh those things you just listed. Uh it fuses as economic and political power in this really obvious way, uh, you know, not hidden through lobbying and smoke-filled rooms, but just right out there in the open. Yeah. It has these uh, independent trade unions that uh, Chalmers Johnson, I think, described uh, really nicely with this phrase sort of preemptive organizations. They're sort of there to preempt labor unrest uh, or at least to preempt the formation of independent unions. And they do a good job of preempting independent uh, trade unions, but they can't go the extra mile and win workers' trust. And then finally, you have this gap between the old ideals of these countries and their current uh, realities, which which is you know an even more um, uh, dramatic gap uh, when a nominally socialist or communist party is still in in power under a market system. Uh, they also, I, I think, it should be admitted, have some strengths, like they can pass down directives easily. Uh, they have organs for, you know, delivering some imperfect justice or kind of incomplete coercion, and they have some good labor laws on the books, and all of that. I, I say, sort of, adds up a, to a distinctive approach to labor unrest.
0: Yeah, you also mentioned three characteristics that I thought were really. I mean, you put your finger right on it that really distinguished China and its approach to industrial relations, and I mean these three. Uh, you know, give it a uniquely Chinese thing. One is this the the outsized role of state-owned enterprises, right? Uh, the second is the hukou system, which still persists, right? And then, of course, uh I think you just you just talked about uh, you know the, the the trade unions, which I mean, I'll, I, whenever I've asked my older Chinese relatives about it, because I, mean, I have, for example, my one of my wife's uncles is a trade union rep, and Basically, it seems to me that their function is to hand out cooking oil around the holidays. <laughs> I mean, I don't see what else they, they actually do. It's really kind of, I've tried to, you know, over over Baijo on, you know, Chunjie or whatever, I've tried to, like, pin him down and ask him about this. One. <laughs> I don't have much to say. But, um, yeah, got to hand out that oil. <laughs>
1: yeah, I mean, they have interesting uh, roots, the All-China Federation of Trade they're formed out of these really radical unions of the pre-revolutionary era, and in the 1950s and again in the 1980s, they made you know cautious bids for a little more autonomy, but both basically they've sort of stuck to this uh transmission belt role where they're supposed to bring down the party's uh, directives to workers and to a lesser degree uh you know pass along workers grievances. And just by law and by the instinct of the people involved in the trade union system, the f- focus has always been on maintaining production above all else. And they're basically treated like a department of the government and people are routinely cycled from the trade union to other areas of public policy in a city or a
0: province. Would, would it be something you would be able to measure whether the, the absence of, of- Let's call them real trade unions in China. Does that absence tend to increase the number of, of acts of labor resistance, as I would imagine, or does it somehow decrease? Because you know we do have All China Federation of Trade Unions that is trying to kind of placate and head off worker unrest. I guess conceivably
1: you could look at uh, the density of the All China Federation of Trade Unions in a given province and strike rates there, and that would be an interesting analysis. Some people have looked more broadly at authoritarian and uh, democratic countries and how they've uh, responded to uh, foreign direct investment, and they found generally that, and I'm thinking of work by Emanuel Teitelbaum and Graham Robertson here, they found that generally uh, you see more strikes in authoritarian settings uh, than... Uh, democratic ones both of them respond with more activism when there's foreign direct investment but more so in the authoritarian settings and their argument is just that they have weaker trade unions for for channeling people's uh, grievances
0: and and uh, pushing them into a sort of normal political process. Hmm, hmm, hmm. I imagine that the the state must look at, at you know the histories so if they look at the, the mid 1980s and the rise of you know in, in in Poland. They must be pretty afraid of, of independent trade unions as well.
1: Yeah, and I think the phrase that was used back then was the uh, uh, Polish disease. right So they were really conscious of that, and they were also conscious of experiments like Yugoslavia's back then with greater shop floor democracy. and they tried to you know pick up some bits and pieces of that with things like uh, the staff and workers, uh, representative uh, congresses in Chinese big state owned enterprises, but they didn't never took it very far.
0: So maybe this is a little bit of a spoiler here, but you know, you have your doubts as to whether these two countervailing forces of repression and responsiveness can really continue to coexist. I mean that's something that you you do address directly in the conclusion of your book. I, I think I your your explanation of, of how and why they actually undermine one another was really concise and really pretty compelling. Can you explain How you see this playing out the way that, you know, the one undercuts the other? A number
1: of scholars, people like uh, Liz Perry or Sebastian Heilman or Yuan Yuan Ang, who you had on your show recently, have Mm -hmm. shown just how incredibly adaptive the Communist Party is when it's faced with a range of different challenges. And it's conceivable, I suppose, that China's leadership will grow out of its confrontation with its workers, too, and it'll... Come out of all this a lot stronger, but I argue in the book that the state will be warped more likely. It'll just have to make a bunch of suboptimal choices. And the metaphor I use is a tree, you know, growing around r- rocks and under power lines and trying to find its roots and loose soil, etc. And mm-hmm. the yeah. reason is that. Uh, prioritizing building up repressive and responsive capacity inevitably comes at the expense of other priorities that the state has, uh, like sure. welfare spending or, say, uh, m- maybe even defense spending to some degree.
0: Yeah, famously, they, they've been spending more on on domestic security than on on the military, right? I mean, everyone exactly, who's yeah, glanced at China knows that stat, right?
1: And the responsiveness, in particular frustrates the party's business allies that it cultivated in the early reform era, while the combo of the repression and the responsiveness at once encourages and then uh, frustrates and angers workers. So it doesn't win the party some sort of new class base to replace the old one. And I guess just more generally, it's difficult to perfectly coordinate carrots and sticks over the long haul. Uh, one of them ends up gumming up the other. There are aspects of these different regional models of handling, handling industrial relations in China that you know conceivably could offer a path forward, uh, but I think they'd require some some real daring uh, that the Chinese
0: leadership hasn't shown yet. Mm, mm-hmm. So, Manfred, I think that we have a, a pretty good idea of the sort of shape of your argument. Um your book opens with an account of labor actions at two Taiwanese-owned shoe factories in Dongguan across roughly the same span of time that your book covers, right? I think the way that these transpired, uh, the protests and the strikes themselves, as well as the responses from the state, uh, I think they capture pretty well in microcosm what the book argues. So maybe it would be good for us to talk about these uh these shoe factory strikes in uh, Xingang and Xingxiong, I guess those were, I don't know the Chinese characters for them. So I'm guessing whether.
1: Yeah. These strikes uh, have a special place in my heart. Cause I was working with a group, a little group called China labor watch at the time that the first mm. of them um, occurred and paid really close attention uh, to it as it unfolded. So the first strike was back in 2004 and it was, fairly spontaneous workers' wages had been delayed and delayed. And then you had uh, foreign customers of the factories of, of uh, Xingang and Xingshong and their owner, Stella, this Taiwanese company. Foreign customers uh, pushing different corporate codes of conduct that restricted hours in ways that just cut the workers' pay even more, and they exploded and rioted and sabotaged equipment and sprayed fire extinguishers around and flipped over the company's vehicles. And in the aftermath of it, uh, and it took a while for the government to restore order, they put a number of the workers who the factory had identified as ringleaders, whether they'd really committed any criminal acts or not, they put a number of these workers on trial Uh, But the workers were let go on appeal uh, when the famous uh, human rights lawyer Gao Zhisheng took up Mm -hmm. their case and when a bunch of groups based abroad uh, put pressure on the Chinese government and put pressure on the brands uh, sourcing from these factories. So that's the sort of initial incident in 2004 that I sort of watched as it unfolded way back when. And then if you fast forward to 2015, you have... Another strike at the same factories and this time it's not about unpaid wages or or some of the other things that were in the background of that original incident like you know, poor quality food and lousy dormitories and abusive uh, physically abusive managers but it's about a housing subsidy that workers weren't paid that hmm. back in 2004 would have felt like you know a detail um, yeah. but when they struck in 2004, The police were very efficient, they arrived quickly, they kettled the workers, you know, surrounded them with police dogs, the labor NGO that tried to get involved was quickly pushed off the scene. Uh, Gao Zhisheng, of course, uh, was no longer around to take the workers case, he'd been um, put in jail, jail? released, put back in jail. And uh, so in a certain way, the workers' uh, situation had really uh, regressed uh, compared to 2004. But on the other hand, the government in 2015 strong-armed Stella, this parent company, to pay out the workers their housing subsidy in cash. And when one of the factories uh, went bottom-up a few years later, they were given a, a generous severance package that went a little bit beyond what was required by law, and just, you know, the fact that they were focusing on a housing subsidy years later and not these, you know, very basic labor conditions uh, showed uh, how much
0: things had also improved. Yeah, so it really is, I mean, it's a perfect microcosm. It kind of tells the story in miniature, right?
1: Yeah, Yeah, and and I don't know if we were going to get to this some other way, but uh, you you can see a similar dynamic uh, playing out right now uh, with, for example... These uh, delivery workers'
0: protests. Mm. Yeah, we. I, I did. I did plan on, on asking you about that and about some of the other things that I think illustrate some of the, the points in your book. I mean, for example, when we were talking just now about the embarrassing hypocrisy of this nominally communist party state that uh, represses actual, you know, workers, uh, people fighting on, on the behalf of workers. Um, I, I thought immediately of the Jasic case. Uh, and and the support that it got from these Peking university marxist study groups and we'll talk about that as well but um so we'll we'll put a pin in that and come back to it in just a bit but i want to look at the two geographies that you focus on on Guangdong and Jiangsu you made an argument for the, the similarity between the two and yet we see quite a bit of regional variation right um there's a lot more labor actions on a per capita basis in Guangdong than you, you see in Jiangsu right is that correct? Yeah, that and, and that's sort of the key difference to my mind. Yeah, and, and so what explains that? I mean, is it just the the policy predilections of local leaders? Is there something cultural to it? I, I remember we, we were talking the other day and you were saying how every time you asked why, people seem to reach for, for cultural explanations. That's interesting.
1: Yeah, and that was true of Jiangsu officials and Guangdong officials, and even some activists in both of the places. So, officials in uh, Jiangsu would talk about how they had this more civilized and harmonious approach to resolving social conflicts, and their counterparts down in Guangdong, uh, you know, wouldn't dispute that, but they'd talk about their more down-to-earth and less stuffy and more accessible. Style. So maybe I'm too uh, quick to uh, dismiss these uh, kind of factors. Uh, My instinct, though, is that they might matter more on the margins. And if there's some sort of big strike and unrest in Jiangsu, uh, their leaders would end up being pushed in the same direction as Guangdong. Mm -hmm. So whether that's their original instinct or not, and the migrant workers in both places uh, presumably don't feel the pull of that culture so much,
0: since they're after all from uh,
1: somewhere
0: else uh, that's true they are from somewhere else but you know still there's these persistent regional stereotypes right I mean the the people in, in Guangdong in the PRD more generally they're they're known to be kind of you know hot-headed they don't take things lying down um, they're they're ornery whereas you know the kind of more genteel population um, not just a much them, but presumably just in in the you know the the mild and climates of the of the, of the uh, Yangtze river Delta <laughs> anyway yeah i I can see why you would resist those sorts of explanations it's just so funny to me that that um you know these provincial stereotypes are just so pervasive <laughs> everywhere um what about other things I mean other factors I mean that you, you might have looked looked at like you know ownership and and management of factories like uh does it matter whether it's soe or private or foreign invested or, or what have you i mean it, does the nature of the capital seem to matter i mean like for example everyone talks about how these taiwan-owned factories were the worst it's the worst to have a taiwan laoban yeah, i mean they were like cool and cruel and capricious and and domineering um whereas you know they, they didn't you know jack dolly the way that like you know a japanese laoban would <laughs> right. Yeah, and
1: I, I, I've always heard these things too. And when it comes to uh, Taiwanese managers in particular, uh, the explanation I've heard, and I don't know if it's true or not, is is that a lot of them are former military officers, or 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 at least you know they have a, a soldier's background of some sort, and they bring that kind mm. of martial approach to things to the shop floor. I, I, I think a lot of those things uh, matter. I think they mostly matter in terms of spurring or dampening unrest. So they affect that side of the equation and less the government's
0: uh, response to it. You know, there's there's a a really interesting point that you raise, though, about the bureaucratic incentives that leaders in, in the provinces or in municipalities face and why that makes them so fixated on dealing with labor resistance. Uh, it's not just this abstract commitment to social harmony. You know, they actually have real KPIs. Can you talk a little bit more about that whole review process that officials undergo and why that compels them to really prioritize addressing these labor issues? I describe these
1: bureaucratic incentives as the conduits that carry the spark of labor insurgency up through the system to the top, and as lots of other observers of China have discussed, officials in China at different levels are measured according to a whole uh, range of different criteria from uh, environmental protection to, uh, in the past at least, uh, implementation of the one-child policy to, of course, a GDP growth. But maintaining stability is one of the things that's sometimes called a one-vote veto of their uh, performance. So if they really do badly on stability, it cancels out any of their other achievements, and it's one that's pretty easy to measure. Hmm. So the incentive for an official is to show that they're taking the matter seriously. You know, some officials might want to rise up in the hierarchy, and so this uh, is a part of their uh, scheming uh, to. Uh, move up in the ranks. Uh, for other officials, uh, you know, staying home is fine enough, but they don't want to deal with the embarrassment of being singled out in front of their colleagues for a bad performance on stability, or they don't want uh, some bonus taken away from them, etc. So they have every reason to, to prove to their superiors that they're taking it seriously, but I, I argue that it takes a different form in different Settings. So, where you have intense unrest, an official can't reasonably be expected to put the genie back in the bottle right away. Uh, but they can demonstrate some creativity and grit in the face of this challenge. So mm. um, that means, you know, engaging in, in reforms that that they wouldn't otherwise, but also coming down really hard on organizers. Whereas in places where unrest isn't so intense. Uh, the incentive is to uh, keep things at a low boil and uh, not let uh, unrest uh, crop up in the first place. And so so there'll be a lot more risk averse, and uh, they won't try out any reforms that might introduce conflict where there isn't that much already.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, Manfred, you, you distinguish between different types of of resistance, acts of resistance. You have what we call more contained labor demands. You have transgressive and boundary-spanning labor demands, right? So what action falls into which type seems to me also to depend on where the boundary itself is. So, you know, if it's boundary-spanning, it very clearly depends on where that boundary is. And my sense is that that boundary has most certainly shifted over time. I mean, we're just Talking about the the 2004 Xinjiang and Shengsheng strikes, and how you know the first ones were about uh you know the sweatshop stuff, and the second was about sort of you know perks about housing subsidies, but um the, the boundary shift. So you mentioned, for example, how surprisingly progressive actually labor policy has become in in the Pearl River Delta, including I mean coming as you say. Quite close to recognizing the actual right to strike. So, so how has this boundary shifted and, and, uh, has it shifted generally in a favorable direction from, from kind of this point of view of, of, of labor activism? And have those shifts endured? Or I guess I'm curious, have they been rolled back as so many other things have been under Xi Jinping?
1: Yeah, that, that's a great uh, question. I think these things are a little bit uh, dependent on the local context. So uh, in some uh, small town somewhere in China, a strike uh, just by itself uh, might uh, be considered very disruptive and a cause for a lot of uh, concern on the part of local officials, uh, whereas it might be uh, treated as a fairly routine in in. Guangdong. So, w- with that caveat, uh, I think there there are some things we can clearly say are are contained, like a petitioning uh, through normal petitioning channels, litigating, uh, working through sort of networks in your worksite. And then there are things that are are uh, clearly uh, transgressive, like uh, building strike actions across multiple worksites sh- or bringing in mm-hmm. outside organizations or raising uh, demands that, uh, you know, uh, touch on institutional stuff like uh, union reforms and that kind of thing. And then there's all this stuff in between that that I uh, borrow from uh, another scholar, uh, Kevin O'Brien, and and describe as uh, boundary spanning. When I first started this research, I think I would have given a really optimistic response to your question and said uh, that, you know, more and more things. Um, that were once treated as transgressive are now uh, maybe boundary-spanning or even treated as sort of contained uh, by officials. And and just the push and pull of industrial relations that are familiar in other countries are, are becoming just normalized in China. Uh, now, maybe I, I wouldn't give quite as optimistic of a response. I think there has been some slippage in recent years and things that were... Uh, starting to be um, dealt with as just purely economic disputes
0: have been given sort of a political sheen again. Sure, sure. That's in recent years, for sure. And I think we can point to the JASIC case, which I want to ask you about in just a second. But you know, maybe what about in, in recent months? We have seen you know Xi Jinping revive this phrase, common prosperity. Uh, we've seen all these regulatory actions that are Taken, you know, ostensibly in the interest of, of, of laborer, uh, of, of law by Uh Specifically, and you've seen, for example, that, uh, okay, maybe these aren't laborers that this is affecting, but the Supreme People's Court did declare 996 work schedules illegal. Uh, they've been pushing, and we mentioned this before, you know, these gig workers, the, the platform economy companies like Didi and Meituan, to really revamp the, the, the way that they treat, you know, these gig workers and to, you know, provide social insurance for them and to bro- bro- other, other perks that they would never have dreamt of doing. Um, what do you make of all of this? I mean, is this being viewed positively by labor activists in in China and and outside of China, people like in, in uh, the China Labor Bulletin? So some of these moves, I
1: think, are really significant, in particular, making some of these uh, delivery workers get counted as employees rather than just contractors. That's, of course, uh, something that uh, different parts of the United States have tried to pull off, too, and have encountered a lot of pushback from the industry. So some of these things really are meaningful, and other parts, I think, are a little bit superficial, Uh, like, for example, the All-China Federation of Trade Unions has once more been asked uh, to step in, and it feels like the dynamic is basically Xi Jinping saying, you know, there's a problem here, Uh, the union deals with workers, it's the union's administrative jurisdiction, so, you know, go fix things union It's a little like having the sanitation department deal with a sewer problem or whatever. There's no idea of the unions are fundamentally changing its role as a part of this bigger common uh, prosperity agenda. It's still just them stepping in reactively uh, to, to tamp something down. And I guess, uh, you know, alongside these moves, which... I think, are, are generally appreciated by labor activists. Uh, there's been continued and, and maybe intensified uh, crackdown on uh, people doing organizing um, at the street level. So when it comes to delivery workers, for instance, uh, the activist uh, Chen Guozhang, or, or Mengju, wow. as he is called, uh, was detained uh, for providing a platform for organizers, uh, workers, uh, delivery workers, to share grievances and a PhD student who is studying these workers was recently detained as well. So, yeah, so you do that. see that undertow again of
0: repressiveness even as you have these moves forward. Yeah, you were really onto something there. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um speaking of Xi Jinping, we talked earlier about how this mix of, you know, repressive and, and responsive approaches may warp the system and it you know, they contain the seeds of their own maybe destruction is is a little overstatement of it. But uh, we've talked that, about some of these factors that shape the mix of responsive and repressive capacities in these different situations. But in your chapter on elite politics, you suggest that you know the individual leader, for for example, Xi, could really affect this mix. I mean, in the the time that you were writing about, you know, during the era of Hu Jintao and Wen Jiabao, there. Maybe it was, you know, because of the particular faction that they come out of or whatever, but they were very much concerned about, uh, rising urban rural inequalities. They, uh, did a lot to address the plight of, of migrant workers. And, uh, it was a kind of kinder, gentler period, maybe. Uh, what was, how much of this is, is the, the leader himself?
1: Yeah. And, and in some ways, I think that Hu Jintao and Wen Jiabao were more Ready to, you know, really stick their fingers into festering social contradictions than Xi Jinping has been, and uh, more willing to take the risk of empowering uh, different social groups in the process of resolving problems. I think leaders do matter, and the precise mix of increased investment and responsive capacity, or increased uh, investment and repressive capacity that will sort of fluctuate back and forth with changes at the top. But I think there's sort of basic trends that continue across these leader uh, shifts. I mentioned that a paper I have uh, with Yao Li that suggests Mm -hmm. the repressive turn happened even before Xi Jinping came to office just a little after the Olympics. And I know you've uh, yourself uh, pointed to just a change in China's posture, uh, more generally around that um, time, and there were you know, serious instances of repression way back under Jiang Zemin too, when sayon enterprise workers took to the streets in a oh, for big sure. way. Yeah. So I think there's a lot of continuity there, uh, even if even if uh,
0: leaders uh, do affect the sort of
1: you know basket of, of policy
0: responses. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we talked about the Jasic strike of July twenty seventh, twenty eighteen, in Shenzhen, and the whole fallout from that, leading up to this crackdown on the Peking University student organized Marxist study groups. Uh, one in particular that had supported the strikers. This really seems to to drive home your point earlier about how China, as this post state socialist country faces real pressure on this issue and, and how the hypocrisies are kind of like laid quite bare. Can you talk a little bit about that? I I know that it's beyond the, the purview of your book itself, but this is certainly something you've been keeping an eye on for sure, yeah?
1: Yeah, for sure. And I have a book chapter about the J6 strike in an upcoming volume edited by some of the uh, uh, editors uh, over at Made in China. Uh, so so it, it's something I've been thinking about a
0: lot recently. Oh, that's a good home for it. I think that's a really good journal for I mean that's a perfect place to put that piece, I have to say. I love those guys. They do wonderful work. They do absolutely yeah, wonderful yeah, that's work. that's a great journal. Yeah. Um I think the Jasic Strikes a really
1: good example of of truly transgressive uh contention in the Chinese context. Not in the sense um that uh the incident itself uh was so transgressive. It, we, we talk about it as a J6 strike, sometimes as shorthand, but there wasn't actually a strike. There was just a series of protests by workers who'd been trying to uh, set up a trade union branch in their factory, at this electronics factory in Shenzhen. Uh, but it was it was transgressive because it brought in all these new groups and um broke down these boundaries uh, that the party generally manages to maintain in society. So in particular, you had uh, dozens of uh, Marxist students coming from different parts of the country and uh, renting rooms in Huizhou, near the site of this factory in Shenzhen, and mobilizing to support the workers. You had uh, retired uh, party members, state-owned enterprises, Workers are uh, throwing their lot in. It's you know the closest thing uh, to a real uh, movement you've seen in a while. You even had sort of a branding of the whole incident uh, with these uh, uh, T-shirts and Twitter handles and everything, showing um, sort of a sketched image of the protesting workers and and the slogan "Solidarity is is strength." Uh, and Hmm. That maybe you know wouldn't be that challenging in, for example, the United States. When I was in college, we protested and supported different groups and it barely made the local paper. and we protested in the same numbers. But it was seen as a real uh, challenge uh, for the Chinese government and the workers were detained. Uh, some trade union officials who'd given the workers advice about uh, forming a union uh, were brought in for questioning. And uh, students were, of course, uh, plucked off their college uh, campuses and uh, disappeared into bands uh, So, so I, yeah. yeah, I think it really shows uh, the kind of punch these issues have for the Chinese government.
0: For sure. For sure. Manfred, it was uh, such a great pleasure to talk to you about this book, which I just cannot recommend more highly. Uh, it's just a, a very, very good contribution to the literature. It certainly helped to shape my understanding of what's happening. So uh, I, I commend you on, on this excellent book. Well, let's move on to recommendations. I want to quickly remind listeners that the Cynical podcast is powered by China and that the best way that you can help us out, really, is to subscribe to the Access newsletter, our daily update on all things that are happening in China. It's uh, put together with loving care by Jeremy and his team, Lucas and Zhao Yun especially. Uh, so check it out. If you are interested in a group subscription to it, if you're uh, listening and you're part of an embassy or an NGO or even a university department and you're looking for a group subscription, contact Alex at subchina.com and he can set you up. Something real good and cheap. Meanwhile, Uh, let's move on to recommendations. And Manfred, why don't you kick us off? What you got for us? So I have a pair of books I wanted to recommend. And I
1: hope the first one hasn't been recommended on the show before. And it's a book from 2012 by Elizabeth Perry called Mm. An Yuan Mining China's Revolutionary
0: Tradition. Yeah. That's
1: the first book.
0: Has it been recommended before? No, it has not been, but Liz has been on the show before. And yeah, yeah, I I love her. She's, she's one of, you know, the true greats of our, of our field. She really is. And it's a really wonderful
1: book. That's just, you know, a great example of the kind of scholarship she does because it focuses, as the title suggests, on the Anuan mine and the organizing that happened there. Uh, involving Mao and Liu Shaoqi and uh, Li Li San, who, who ended up being uh, one of the first leaders of the All-China Federation of Trade Unions, incidentally. And they all play like a different role than you'd expect. So Liu Shaoqi is the one with the personality cult that he's building up around him, while Mao huh. is sort of the pragmatic, uh, you know, organization man. Um, it, it's what? just a really neat... <laughs> A neat book
0: uh, with a lot of surprises in it. Well, that is certainly a surprise. <laughs> I once described, you know, Liu Shaoqi is birth to Mao's Ernie, and I <laughs> right, right, right. No, that's fantastic. Uh, great. So that's the first book. So, Liz's uh, book on An Yuan, and the other book uh,
1: is also a book about mining, but uh, in uh, Appalachia in the states. And it's called uh, "The Devil Is Here in These Hills: uh, West Virginia's Coal Miners and Their Battle for Freedom." And it's by James Green, and it's from 2015. And it's just a really vivid history of the mine wars of the early 20th century, and and you know gets you really rooting uh, for some of the characters again, uh, much like uh, uh, Liz Perry's book, uh, characters like. Um, Mother Jones or Frank Keaney the mm. the uh mine leader uh who who uh, was behind the big battle of Blair Mountain when you had uh, you know something between 8,000 and tens of thousands of armed miners uh, uh marching through the woods you know you get to know people like like that and uh the two books
0: together i think kind of speak to each other in a nice way well wow, that one sounds fantastic i will almost certainly read that one Thank you. Excellent recommendation. Uh, I have something a little less ambitious. Uh, it's just an, a podcast, The Ezra Klein Show generally, but in particular an episode that Ezra did with Adam Tooze, the economic historian who's been on our show a couple of times and who really ranks among my favorite public intellectuals just you know for his dazzling perspicacity and his ability to synthesize across such a broad range of, of disciplines and topics. So uh, listen to that one, which, interestingly, it just never mentions China. But as you listen, be thinking China the whole time and, and see what you come away with. I mean, because I I did that on the recommendation of a friend of mine. Uh, and if you have ideas of what I might mean uh, by, you know, what what I'm hinting at here— Drop me an email. I'd be really curious to hear what our listeners have to say about this. So um, that's my recommendation. Ezra Klein. I, I just think Ezra Klein is brilliant. He, he's, I, I'll never be the interviewer that he is, but he he's just got a, a fantastically subtle mind. I, I love the guy. Manfred, thanks once again. The book is called Workers and Change in China, Resistance, Repression, Responsiveness, and it really does make such an excellent contribution to the literature all about, you know, authoritarian governance. And Manfred, I look forward to having you back on the show. I I really enjoyed the conversation and uh, look forward to, to talking again sometime. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SupChina and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced and edited by me, Kaiser Guo. We'd be delighted if you'd drop us an email at Seneca at SupChina.com or just as good, give us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, as this really does help people discover the show. Meanwhile, follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at @subchina_news, and make sure to check out all the shows in the Sinica Network. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take care.